0: Growing up, I was involved, as probably some of you also were, in many team sports and team activities. One of the most common phrases that was given to us by our coaches and the parents that would help with those things was the phrase, there's no I in team. And perhaps you are familiar with that. And and, and usually what would happen is that a whistle would blow within a game and it would either be maybe a soccer game or a basketball game. What you would have is you would have a unorganized, chaotic mass of children all crowded around wherever the ball would be, punching or kicking, and everybody trying to get a hold of this 10-inch rubber ball and with not much success in actually accomplishing anything in the process. Well, the task of the coaches and the teachers of that was to teach us, the players, how to play our position and how to operate in a unified manner so as to systematically move the ball down the field or the court, avoiding the other team's defense, ultimately so that we can score a goal. The object lesson in all of that is that a unified group can accomplish a task a lot more effectively than a series of individuals who are all playing according to their own strategy and for their own uh, glory. Now, what's true for a team in sports or for anything else in life is also true for a nation. And in our case, for our study, it's God's nation, the people of God in the Bible. Now, God's goal is not to score a goal or make a basket or a touchdown or anything like that. But God's goal with his people is that he wants to create a nation through which he can reveal himself to the world. That's what God said to Abraham when he first called him and told him he would be the father of a nation. He said, in you, that is in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. His goal then secondarily was that that nation would honor the precepts and the principles that he gave to them to live by and have so that he could bless and prosper them and they would be an example to other nations that they might be a light, that they might also know who God is. And then thirdly, God's goal was that that nation would be the avenue through which God could come into the world himself in the person of Christ and then pay the price for the sins of the whole world and bring redemption. So, in short, God's goal and God's mindset was that that nation did not exist for itself. They didn't exist just to be another nation that branded the name that they were governed by God. They had a purpose and there was a will of God for their existence. Now, just like on a team... Every player, every position has a part in accomplishing the goal ultimately of that team. So also it's true with God's nation. Not everyone plays the same part. There are some that are military. There are some that are legislative, lawmaking. There are others that are the arm of enforcement for that legislation. There's a priesthood, those that help the people know God and link with God. There are prophets that help the people understand and know what God's will is for them. There were just citizens that were food providers, those that worked and just existed and lived within that society to bring strength to it. And so every part of that society had a role within it, but their goal was that they would operate in unity as a unified whole so as to accomplish God's purposes of revealing himself to the world, of shining as light in a dark place, and ultimately of bringing forth Christ to be the Savior of the world. Now, that principle of unity and the effectiveness that comes from everyone playing their part and having a common goal is true in every area of life. It's true for a nation. It's also true for a community. It's also true for a corporation or a business partnership that unity is essential. It's true for a church or for a ministry. It's true in a marriage or with a family that unity is essential. And it's also true with the individual, that there be a unity or a soundness even in the soul of an individual Person. Now, if there is unity of vision and purpose in any area of life, no matter what it is, then the result will always be success and strength. However, if there is division and self seeking, things will always fall apart, no matter what it is. Now, throughout the Bible, we see the impact that can be made when people are unified. At the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, the people were unified in rebellion against God. And God himself said, the people are one and nothing will be impossible to them. And God confounded their unity because their unity was actually destructive. But it speaks to the power of unity. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 2, two of the greatest outpourings of God's spirit that are given to us in the testimony of scripture. But the precursor to both of those outpourings is that the people were of one mind and one accord. There was unity of heart and purpose among them. We see the power of the tandem work of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the three that are one. And we see what God is able to accomplish, nothing impossible for a God who is unified within himself. Five times Jesus prayed as he prayed for his church just prior to his ascension, going to heaven. Five times in one prayer, Jesus prayed that his church, you and I, that we would be one because he knew how important and how impacting that unity could be if we would be of one heart and of one mind. And we see all throughout life the power of unity and what it can do when there is a uniting, even of just two people, whether it's in marriage or a partnership, like we see with Jonathan and his armor bearer back a few studies ago, or Paul and Silas in the New Testament, the power of unity. Now, without unity, with unity, all of that is possible, but without unity... There's always an immediate loss of vision. People quickly forget why and what they're doing, and things start to fall apart. Progress and advancement almost immediately cease. The kingdom of light, that's what we're a part of, starts to lose ground to the kingdom of darkness. Satan is able to advance and stop us from accomplishing what we're to do. There's usually individual casualties. People kind of get pushed to the wayside, or they're off in the margins, and they become insignificant or distant and there's always a general spirit of strife and discontent when there is a lack of unity well where we begin here in second samuel tonight we see that the nation has made a transition from a theocracy what they had under the period of the judges to now a monarchy where god has established a king through which he will govern guide and lead his nation For 40 years, they've had the first king, King Saul. And he passed away in our last study at the very end of 1 Samuel. Saul is gone. Their first king is gone. So they're a theocracy, but it's far from a united theocracy. The people are greatly divided. There's schism. There's civil war. There's unrest in the midst of the people of God. They've got their king. But they haven't made any progress. They're no better off than they had been before. Now, with Saul dead, it's clearly evident that the will of God is that David become the new king over the people of Israel, that he be established as Saul's successor. But not everyone in Israel is on board with that. There's some that don't want to give their allegiance to David and they have various reasons, whether it's tribal or personal or whatever else, but they're not ready to embrace David uh, as their king. And so the first five chapters of Samuel, the thing that we'll look at tonight in our study, is how God brings a chaotic and disorganized nation into that unified and productive organism that will move the advancement of god's process and progress in the world forward so that god's goal can be completed so i hope to answer these questions tonight in in our study is number one is why is unity so important because it seems like it's kind of one of those fringe topics not essential but yet it is essential why is that second of all how does unity happen specifically amongst the people of god next what is the cost of division What penalty is there to pay when we refuse to or we cannot unite as God's people? And then finally, what is the benefit of harmony amongst us? So by the time we get to chapter 5, we'll see the kingdom organized, unified, moving together, and we'll also have those questions answered for ourselves. And so we begin in chapter 1, and and chapter 1 really testifies to us that unity begins when we, and this is we, us, choose to think the best of others And overlook evil. Now again. In our last study at the very end. Saul and Jonathan perished. They passed off the scene. David returned to Ziklag. He had to rescue and redeem. That which the Amalekites had taken. He does so successfully. And where we join David now. As we come into chapter 1. Is that he goes back to Ziklag. And he spends two days there. Reorganizing. Getting things back together. And on the third day. A young man comes to David who must have been traveling, uh, you know, almost ceaselessly. He travels 60 or 80 miles from the place where Saul and Jonathan were killed down to the place where David is in Ziklag in the southern regions of Israel. And he reports to David what took place within the battle. And so he tells David that, that Saul and his son have died, that the people lost the battle. And David asks for proof. He says, how do you know that Saul and his son have died? And so the young man says, I was there and here's what happened. I was on Mount Gilboa and I turned around and Saul was there and he had fallen on his sword in an attempt to commit suicide. But his life was still in him. And when he saw that the Philistines were upon us, he called to me and he said to me, stand over me and kill me because I don't want the Philistines to abuse my body. And so, I knew that he couldn't live, the young man said, so I took a sword and I killed him. I finished him off and I took the crown that was on his head and I took the bracelet that was on his arm and I have brought them now here to you. Now, it's very evident that this young Amalekite knew exactly what was going on in the political spectrum there in Israel. He knew that Saul was the king. He also knew that David was the refugee you know, the fugitive, if you would, that was in civil conflict with Saul and he knew that he was bringing this word to David and that he was the man to go to. He also thought that he'd be bringing David good news. He thought, this has been your enemy. We, we all know that. And so we're bringing you this crown, this bracelet, and, and he's thinking that he's going to see rejoicing and that he might even get a reward as being the bearer of this news. But that's not what happens. When David hears that Saul and Jonathan are dead, he immediately tears his clothes and the men who are with him do likewise. And they begin to mourn and fast and lament the fact that Saul and Jonathan have died. And then David, after that moment of mourning, looks at the Amalekite. And the mood, the demeanor changes. And he goes from thinking he'll be rewarded in David's rejoicing to, uh oh. And David said, Who do you think you are slaying the anointed of the Lord? David said, didn't you find, think that there, there would be some problem with that, that you don't do that? And so David ordered that that man be executed, that Amalekite, because of what he did. By the way, I'm not going to comment on this later, but remember when Saul was told by Samuel to kill the Amalekites and he didn't do it? He said, I almost did it. Isn't that good enough? The principle in that is this. If God tells you to kill something in your life and you let some of it live, that might be the very thing that comes back around and kills you later. But anyways, that's what happened to Saul. He was killed by an Amalekite. And then David testifies, he writes this song of lament and really of celebration, a eulogy over the life of Saul and Jonathan. And he says these great things about Saul, of all people. He says that he was the beauty of Israel. He says that the mighty have fallen. He talked of how much he loved Saul and Jonathan and he magnifies their strength. He praises the leadership of Saul and the good things that happened in the nation while he was uh, the king, that they economically were prosperous and that God uh, blessed the nation under Saul. And he talked of all of the good that Saul did for the nation. Now, isn't that so contrary to what we would think? How would you respond if you found out tomorrow that your worst enemy in the whole world was dead? Would you lament and be remorseful? Or would you rejoice and feel a sense of reward inside you? That wasn't David. And that's the lesson, really, of chapter 1, is that here it is. And I gave it a title. It's Love Your Enemies for Christ's Sake. And that, you know, pun intended there. See, the Amalekite was expecting that David would rejoice. But David didn't rejoice. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 17 through 18, it says this. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and it displease him and he turn away his wrath from him. See, it doesn't please the Lord. The Bible says that he takes no joy or delight in the death of the wicked. God desires that all should come to repentance. He's patient and gracious. And therefore he calls us to have that same mentality with those who trouble us. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter five, verse 44. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The way Luke says it is that he's kind to both the good and the evil, that that's the heart of our father is that he isn't looking for the wicked to perish. But rather, he shows them kindness just the same. In fact, Paul the Apostle said that it's the goodness and the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. Furthermore, Paul took it a step further in this insight or this idea of loving your enemies. In Ephesians chapter 6, that famous passage that talks to us about our spiritual warfare and the weapons of it, Paul said this. He says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In other words, that person that for you is an enemy, a constant grinding on your temperament, that person isn't the enemy that you face. Rather, there are spiritual strings that are attached to the things about that person that grind upon you. It's bigger than that person. And so, therefore, God says you're to love them. You're not to rejoice over the calamity that comes to them, but you're to see beyond it. Now, why? Why are we to love our enemies? Here's why. Because God does. His hope is that they'll turn around, and you are to be the agent of his grace and his kindness towards them. You can't do that if your attitude towards them is filled with hatred. You're also to do it because God says. Not just because he does, but he also says. And his pleasure is our profit. In other words, if God wants us to love our enemies, then He wants us to love our enemies for our good. It's His pleasure, it's our profit, it's actually good for us. So, in other words, our attitude towards our enemies is a vital ingredient in God's purposes being played out in the world. That's what we're talking about in this whole study is is it my purpose in life or is it His purpose in life? He's the coach. And so if his purposes in the world are accomplished through my obedience in this arena of loving my enemies, then his pleasure is my profit. He tells me I'm to do it. And the number three, and we've seen this in David throughout his life as we've gone through it, it's this. It's that God is using our enemies to shape and transform us. They are God's tools to bring forth the character and nature of Christ within our lives. And here's what happens, is that that thing that hurts you the most becomes your best friend later in life. If you had to sit on a surgeon's table and he was operating on you with the scalpel, at the moment of that surgery, that operation, that scalpel is your worst enemy because it's cutting you. It's making you bleed. It's causing you pain. It's interrupting your life. But when you find out later that a cancer was cut out by that scalpel, that scalpel that was once your greatest enemy is now your best friend because it's taken something out of your life that was going to kill you And it's given you a much more wholesome existence because of the absence of that cancer. And God uses our enemies in us to remove things in us and to fulfill his purpose in our future. You say, well, how do you do it? Because, man, that's not easy. How do you love your enemy? Here's how. Is that you allow your soul to be saturated and satisfied with God's love for you. See, when you believe that God loves you and you're filled and satisfied by that love, you're able to see beyond the pain that that enemy is causing you within your life and to with faith proclaim, God, you're working it out and I'm satisfied in you. And if you're allowing this enemy to do his bidding in my life for your purposes, I'm going to let you do your work and I'm going to be satisfied in it. And by your grace, I'm going to be able to love you even, even though they are my enemy. God calls us to think the best of others. That's what David did with Saul. He thought the best of him. You know it through his eulogy and his response to Saul's death, and you see it in David's interactions with Saul throughout all the years that Saul was tormenting David. He saw the best in him. He didn't judge him by his actions. He judged him by his intentions, and he saw the hand of God as trumping the hand of men. It's one of the things I love about my wife. She, won't, she will not let me operate on an assumption. She is always pushing me to think the best of people. That is, to not assume that because someone says something or does something a certain way, that that means that they have ill will or guile towards me in any way. And anytime I say something to her, if there's even a hint of assumption in it, she says, think the best. Think the best. Don't look at it that way. That's an assumption. You're outside on that. And I say, you know what? You're right. Thanks. And may God give us the ability to see and think the best of people, even if they are our enemies. Now, the power to live this way, what we're being exhorted to here as we see it in David, rests solely with the individual. You have to make the choice to live this way. No one can do it for you. And everybody has to do it if there will be unity and if there will be love. We must love our enemies and see the best in others. And David did it. He was a positive influence on the nation. And it was huge that David would become their leader and that this was his attitude and mindset towards people. Well, we move into chapter 2. And here's what we see in chapter 2 is we see a picture of what happens in a divided house. That is when there's a lack of unity and people aren't living in harmony with one another, what does it look like? And what does it profit? Well, at this point, David is made king over the tribe of Judah in Hebron. He's in Ziklag and he prays and he says, God, should I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And God says, yes, go up to Hebron. So he goes to Hebron. He meets with the elders of Judah and they anoint him king over that one tribe. Now, you remember that Israel is made up of 12 tribes and Judah was only one of those 12. So David becomes the king over that tribe at this time, and he remains king over just Judah for the next seven and a half years. So he's king over one. He hears word at this time that the men of Jabesh Gilead, which was in the area of Dan north and on the other side of the Jordan River, that they had given Saul and Jonathan a proper burial, and they had treated them with respect. So David sends messengers to Jabesh Gilead, thanking them for the way that they treated Saul, and then he makes a strategic move. He mentions to them that he had been anointed king by the tribe of Judah. And his intent in that was that they might also join ranks and fall in behind David because they had great influence over the tribes of Ephraim and Benjamin and the major bulk of the population of Israel. Well... They don't heed David's invitation, but rather we're told that Abner, remember him? He was the general, the chief of Saul's military. So kind of second in command, the chief of staff, if you would. Abner takes ish That's a handful. You can say that 10 times fast for fun later on or if you want to practice your speech. He was a surviving son of Saul. And Abner makes ish king over the other 11 tribes of Israel. You kind of say 10 tribes because Levi doesn't count. They're the priests, priests you know. So, so uh, uh, Ishbosheth becomes the king over those other tribes. Abner hangs on to his position as general, and you see the great divide. You have David and his leadership over Judah, and you have Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and his kingship over the other 10 tribes. Well, here's what happens civil war begins immediately. Abner takes his men and they cross over the Jordan. They head down south to the pool of Gibeon. And Joab, who was David's general, David's chief of staff, he takes the armies of David and he goes and he meets Saul, Saul's men, Ishbosheth's men, Abner's men, at the pool of Gilboa. And they come up with a little bit of a wager. They say, all right, we don't want to go to war. It's not really right for us to kill each other because we're all Israelites, but let's do this. You get 12 of your guys, And we'll get 12 of our guys, and we'll let the 12 of them fight to the death. And whoever's left standing wins. And so the 12 on 12 thing happens. Each man grabs the other by the head, and they stab each other, and all 24 of them drop dead. And so what they were seeking to avoid happens anyway, and they begin a battle, and it's a fierce battle. And it says that the men in the tribe, the troops of David, prevailed over the troops of Saul, and it was fierce. 320 men of Ishbosheth and Abner's forces will die and 20 of David's will die. In the process of the battle, and it is paramount to the story later on, one of Joab's brothers, a man by the name of Aziel, the Bible says that he was as light of foot as a gazelle. It means that he could run really fast that he caught on to Abner's path while Abner, the general, was running, and he had fire in his eyes. He said, I have a shot right now to do battle with the number two guy on that side, and if I can take him down, then we win. The whole thing is over right now. So he gives chase, and he's faster than Abner, so he begins to catch up. But Abner was stronger and smarter. And so Abner, who was also strategic, he calls out while he's running, and he says, turn aside to the right-hander to the left and he gives him a warning, but it says that Azael pursued. And then he says again, turn aside and grab some armor. At least arm yourself if you're going to fight me. He was running. He was not wearing any armor, but he didn't listen. He continued to pursue. And so Abner, when Azael got close, it says that he took the spear, the blunt end of the spear, the rounded end, and he thrust it behind him, perhaps with the intent of injuring or deterring Azael, but it says that the Blunt end of the spear went into Azael and it came out the backside so that he dropped dead. Now, the reason I do that is not to gross you out, but because he was the brother of Joab, who was David's general. And he was killed by Abner, who was Saul's general. And you can see the offense and the the problem that that's going to create. And that's going to come back uh, around a little bit later on. Well, they continue abner's upset because he didn't want to do it joab's upset because he just lost his brother 320 israelites are gone 20 are gone from the tribe of judah and finally abner out of breath i'm sure calls out and he says and it's in verse 26 it's really the key verse of the whole chapter he says this he says shall the sword devour forever knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end those are wise words from a man who is right in the midst of a civil war. Don't you know that it will be bitterness in the latter end. And then a truce is called and everyone goes home. Well what we see in this chapter is we begin to see. Where division or strife or discord comes from. Amongst the people of God or really amongst any people. Scripturally the answer is put very well in James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. James says this. He says where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And that's exactly the issue that's going on here. There is a struggle for power over who is going to rule and have great position in Israel. This is what we call every man looking out for his own good. We see the men of David wanting their man in control for their sake. And we see the men of Abner wanting their man in control so as that they don't lose the position and their stake in things in Israel. And and it's causing war, it's causing bloodshed, and it's causing bitterness. But there's a greater why as to why this is happening. Not just because they want position. That's kind of the symptom, if you would. But the problem, the deeper problem is this, is two things. Number one is that there's a lack of submission to God. They've lost sight of why they exist as a nation. They don't exist just to be a kingdom and to hold positions and to operate within government and to do things. They exist for God's greater goal. That is to have a nation that he can rightly represent him. That they be a light in the world and not a spot of darkness that ultimately truth and a Savior would come through them. That's what God wanted, but they lost sight of it. They were no longer submissive to God, and and so that became the second part of the problem, which was that there was no longer a commission or a purpose. They had no more purpose. So what James is telling us here and what we're seeing then illustrated back over in Samuel chapter 2 is that it doesn't matter if it's a kingdom or a nation or a church or a marriage or a friendship, it's the same issue that causes division on every level. And here's what it is. Number one, you lose sight of God. That he is the head of all things, that all things exist for him and that he's the one that establishes roles according to his good pleasure and his purpose and what he wants to do. So when you lose sight of the head, you're in a lack of submission to God. Then number two, people lose sight of the goal. See, we don't exist for ourselves, whether it's in our families, in our marriages, or whether it's in a church or in our community. We don't exist just to exist and to see how high we can climb and how powerful we can be. We exist for greater than that. And So it's a tragic thing when the people of God lose sight of what it is that we've been put on this earth to do. And if we lose sight of it, then all we have energy to do is turn inward on ourselves and to begin to divide and fight and destroy and tear down. And that's where division comes from. It's interesting, isn't it, that they put 12 on 12 and how many die? All of them. See, nobody wins when there's division amongst the people of God on any level, in any church or any family. And when people put their personal desires or their ambition in front of God or in front of the gospel, which is our commission, what you're doing is you're taking the most beautiful thing on the, on the planet that exists, God and his gospel, and you're upstaging it with what you want. You're taking the most beautiful thing and you're exchanging it for the ugliest thing in the world. So the question is never who's stronger or more qualified. The problem or The question should always be, is what does God want? And that's where unity comes from. And so we see the results of discord in chapter 2 and what it produces. It produces nothing. And it comes from selfish ambition. Well, chapter 3, in the beginning, the first six verses of chapter 3, seven years pass. Seven and a half years, really. It says that there was long war between the house of David and the house of Saul. We also see that David takes four more wives during this period, the seven and a half years that he's in Judah, a problem that is going to come back to bite him a little bit later on. And I won't comment on it later, but I will say, be careful of the little sins that God doesn't immediately chastise you for and you think, well, God doesn't really mind if I do this. We'll come back to that when we get to chapter 11. But the rest of the chapter now deals with the defection of Abner. Abner is going to leave his allegiance with Ishbosheth. And he is now going to join the ranks of David and his men. And here's how it happened it says that Abner was strengthening his hold on the administration of Ishbosheth, meaning he was becoming more and more powerful in his influence. And Ishbosheth was beginning to feel a little bit challenged by the influence of Abner. So Ishbosheth throws out a offensive accusation trying to slander the reputation of abner he says why did you go in to saul's concubine that means have relations with her now the reason why someone would do that is because they're making a play on the throne you would you would be saying i want to be the king and so ishbosheth is trying to blow this thing up to try to make the people accuse abner of treason and remove him from his position but abner is too powerful for that and he's innocent So he turns around and he said, what am I, a dog's head? I've been nothing but good to you, Ishbosheth. I didn't defect to David and I didn't turn Israel over to him when it was in the power of my hand to do it. But I have been kind to you, to your house, and to the tribe of Benjamin. But God do so more to Abner also, if I do not deliver all of the nation of Israel into the hand of David and his allegiance breaks from Ishbosheth at this time and he sends messengers to David asking if he can be in allegiance with David's kingdom and administration and then David answers with a politically strategic response he says yes but there's one condition remember Michal the daughter of Saul that was given to David he fought, killed 200 Philistines to pay for her, literally. That was the dowry that Saul required, and David did it. And she was given to him, but then she was taken from him and given to another man. Well, David says to Abner, get her for me. I want her back. Now, we find out that she was a real shrew. She wasn't the marrying type, not the real kind of woman that you, you know, want intimate and deep conversation. I mean, she was just a rough around the edges kind of girl. This was political, see? See? He wanted in this two things. Number one, she was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he wanted the tribe of Benjamin to be in allegiance, alignment with him. He's trying to unify. It would also produce offspring that would have Benjamite blood, meaning that it was possible that in the future, someone with Benjamite influence could actually be on the throne. And so there was a much better chance that he would have the allegiance of Benjamin if he had Michal. I don't know how to say her name. Does anyone know how to say that name? I think it's got the in it, you know, like Michal, you know. So Abner says, okay. And so Abner goes to her house. He says, hey, woman, you're coming with me. He grabs her by the arm. The husband, we get the idea. He's not a real strong kind of guy. He kind of follows her weeping, going, no, please, don't take her. I love her, please. And Abner turns around. He says, go home. And the guy goes, okay. And he goes home, you know. So Michal, the woman, is brought now to, uh, to David. And Abner says, not only have I brought her to you, but I have also, with my influence, brought the allegiance of the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Ephraim and all of the other tribes with me. Now, the amazing thing is this. Here's Abner. For 10 years, he was the man responsible for trying to kill David. And when he comes to David, not only is he received, but he's received with a feast. David honors him as though he's a prince. And he treats him with the highest dignity and respect. And then he gives him an important position. He makes him an ambassador to go out and to win the allegiance of the other tribes to be a messenger for David uh, or on David's behalf to them. Well, here's what happens. Joab finds out. Remember, Abner killed Joab's brother. Joab is David's right-hand chief of staff, and he's angry. He's incensed. So he comes to David, he finds out Abner's already gone out and he says, are you nuts? He said, he doesn't care about you. He wants to find out what you're doing. He's seeking intelligence and he's going to bring it back and use it against you. You're out of your mind. Well, Joab quickly departs with his men and without David's authority, he sends messengers for Abner and he says, Joab wants to meet with you. So Abner in innocence, thinking it's of David, meets him outside of the city gates of Hebron, which was home base there. He pulls him outside of the city into a secret place, and he says, I've got a message for you. And he kills him. And he kills him the same way his brother was killed. And the Bible specifically says that it was done as an act of vengeance. He did it not because he thought that uh, this was a bad political move for the kingdom. He did it because he was bitter over what Abner did in self-defense to uh, Azael, his brother. Well, David finds out what happens. And David's response is the thing that causes the other tribes to make him king over the nation. He weeps. He weeps over it. He laments over the nature of his death. He honors him as a prince. He curses Joab and his descendants, asking God that no descendant of Joab ever uh, has a wholesome life. He refuses to eat for the day and then he leaves the punishment in the hand of God, but the, the key verse in that whole part where it talks about David's response to it, it says that it pleased the people when they saw not only that David wasn't behind the death of Abner, but how broken, upset, and how respectful he was for Abner and what uh, it, it was in his life. So what's the application of all, all of this? And he, here's what it is. Is that there is a key element in this chapter as far as what is required if you want to have unity. And that is this. It's one word, hardest word in the English language. Forgiveness. The word forgiveness. It really is the message of the chapter. Here's Abner. He was David's enemy for over a decade, personally responsible for leading the campaign that was to leave David dead. And David immediately forgives this man. Without ever bringing anything up, without ever talking about anything that Abner ever did, he immediately and totally forgives him. Now, why? Why? because if I'm David, this guy was trying to kill me for a long time. Why does David just forgive this guy? I think he senses, first of all, that there's sincerity in it, that it isn't a political thing. Second of all, I think David has the ability to do this. Here's the key, because he knows how much he's been forgiven himself. He's aware of his own shortcomings. He knows that there's no difference between him and anyone else, that under the same circumstances, he would be the same. And David knows that his past has been washed away and forgotten. And so, therefore, he was able to forget the past as it pertained to Abner, his former enemy. Do you know that unity without forgiveness is impossible? Cannot be done. If you're seeking to attain unity in a situation where you don't have it, you can't do it without forgiveness. There has to be things that are forgiven. And if you have unity and you just want to maintain it, you can't maintain it without forgiveness. Because people are going to do things that have the potential and the ability to divide. And so if you're not a person who can forgive, then you're never going to experience unity. And thus you won't have the benefits that come with it. And you also will experience the calamity that it costs to not have it. You've got to forgive. And lack of forgiveness is often the wedge that creates division that destroys. You say, I know, but it's so hard. How do you forgive? Listen. How did David forgive someone who tried to take his life for 10 years? See, it's only hard if you don't consider yourself. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says it like this. Paul writes, and he says, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We're to forgive, not blindly, but we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. Well, how does Jesus forgive? How did Jesus forgive us? Well, first of all, he forgot our past. The Bible says that he casts our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. Now, think about that. A God that has all knowledge, who knows every fact of everything, chooses to forget the offenses that you have made against him. That's amazing and incredible thing. And if we're to forgive like that, then that means that we must forget the past. It's, It's essential. Do you realize that the timeline of your life, and mine, all of us, and we're all equal here, the timeline of your life has no left margin? In other words, if you look at your life and all the time that you have left right now, it starts now, and it goes forward into the future. It doesn't go backwards at all. You can't even relive the last 10 seconds. You can't relive any of it. You can't change one moment of what is already passed. And so, therefore, if you're going to be a person that forgives, you've got to be a person that can forget the past because you can't change the past. So you choose. You either have division, strife, and bitterness in the latter end because you can't let go of the past, or you leave the past in the past and you move forward. That was Paul's mentality. He said it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, I do not count myself to have attained, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind I press forward towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's essential to forget the past. How else did Jesus forgive us? We find that there was a table prepared for us. He says that a table is prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. He willingly and gladly receives us. We come to him for forgiveness. He gives us forgiveness and he gives us his grace and his abundance on top of it. He doesn't say you'll work yourself out of your sin debt eventually and we'll be on, you know, somewhat shaky terms until you figure it all out. No, immediately he forgives us and he blesses us. He also appoints a place for us. The Bible says that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in. He gives us a place, something to do, a purpose. He's touched by our tragedies. He became one of us. And the Bible says that he was tempted in all points like we are, yet without sin, so that he could feel the feeling of our infirmities. He's touched by our tragedies. And he's also called us princes and princesses. He treats us with the highest esteem and honor. That's the way Christ forgave you. And now he calls you to forgive others in that same way. And isn't it interesting that that's exactly what David does for Abner here. All of those things. He forgot the past. He prepared a table. He appointed a place. He was touched by the tragedies. He wept at the death of Abner and he called him a prince in his eulogy for it. That was the way he had been treated by God and therefore he was able to treat Abner the same way. Forgiveness is essential for unity. That's in a marriage, it's in a family, a friendship, a partnership, a church, a ministry, a community, a nation, a world. There must be a place for forgiveness and Jesus has led the charge. In chapter 4 we find the death of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth that reigning son of Saul finally dies. We're told that he was weakened by the death of Abner. He became discouraged. And two of his own captains, two guys one by the name of uh, Rechab and the other by the name of Baana, they sneak in at noon while Ishbosheth is taking his midday nap. And they cut off his head. And then they run to where David is in Hebron and they bring the head of Ishbosheth, in like manner, like the Amalekite did, thinking that they would secure for themselves some kind of uh, position as they eliminated David's final um, foe, and, and also, uh, you know, give themselves in allegiance to him. Um, they 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 do that, but it says that uh, in the chapter that David ordered them executed. He said, "Didn't you hear what happened to an Amalekite when he thought he came to me with the news of Saul's death and what I did to him, and how much more?" When wicked men have slain a righteous man on his own bed while he was sleeping, how much more will I do to you? And so David orders that these two men be executed, which they are on the spot. Uh, and, and that um, kind of is the end of the chapter. It's the shortest chapter in the section. But I call this chapter "The Blind Man, the Blind Men, and the Will of God." H- how many of you? And um, you know, maybe I'm dating myself as too young uh, in this. But how many of you have ever had or used one of those magic eight balls? You know what I'm talking about? You, you know, when you, you have the thing and it's filled with black ink and you shake it like a dice and then you turn it over and there's like this thing that has all these phrases on it, like answering questions and you shake it, you go, you you know, this is what we did. We were kids. We go, Does she like me? And then you turn it over and it's like, not likely. And you're like, oh no, you know, and you shake it again. You try. And then it says, maybe you're like, all right, I'll take a, maybe I'll take a, maybe, you know, <laughs> it's the magic eight ball. You do it. And here's why is because you want to know what's coming in the future. Now, not one of us knows what's coming in the future. Not one of us. No one knows what it is. But we want to know what the future is so that we can manipulate the outcomes and make it better for ourselves. That's what we want to do. That's that's the whole idea. But we can't. However, God does know the future. He knows everything that's ever going to happen to us every day of our life and everything that's going to happen around us and in the world every day. And he's the only one that can work things out for our favor. Do you understand that? He can manipulate circumstances and things to make things happen in a way that is best for us. And he does it in a way that it's better than we could ever even do for ourselves. We could not do for us what God wants to do for us. Tricky thing. God's not going to tell you what he has for your future. He only tells you this that it's good. Over and over and over again, God declares that his will for your future is good. I know the plans I have towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts for peace and not for evil to bring you to an expected end or a future and a hope. It's good. If Romans eight twenty eight, God says that all things are working together for good to those that love God and are called for his purpose. Ephesians two ten, good works that you should walk in them. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse 11, it mentions that you would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. He's redundant there. Even that's how good it is that he keeps using the word good. And that's what God's got for you. He says that it's good. Now for you and me, good is relative. Good. My good might not be your good or good could be maybe good or it could be better. Maybe there's best. There's somewhat good. But this is God saying good. What is good when God says good? That's the the real question and the real issue here. So God doesn't tell us what it is. He tells us it's going to be good, but then he gives us three things. Here's what God gives us, you and me. Here's what he gives us. Number one is he gives us promise that it's going to be good. Then number two, he gives us provision. Here's what I mean by that. He gives us his word. He gives us precepts and principles, standards that we can live our life by, what Jesus called the narrow path, and he says, if you walk within these standards and these principles, then you will end up in the place of what I call good. This is the way that you're to go. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to tell you how long it's going to take. I'm just going to tell you, if you walk this way, you will get there. That's an absolute promise. That's provision. Number three gives you protection. First John, I think it's 518. It says that the wicked one cannot touch you if you walk within that provision of God's way, what he says. So he gives you promise, he gives you provision, he gives you protection. Satan cannot hijack God's good intention for your life. But it's up to you to choose to surrender yourself to the will of God and to walk in his ways so that you can end up in what he calls good for your life. Now, in our text here, here is the will of God. He has made it clear to the whole nation that David is to be the king, okay? But ish he's the blind man, Ishbosheth, he thinks that he can do better for himself. He thinks, well, no, I'm going to hang on to my power, my scepter, my authority, because I think that my will for my life is better than God's will for my life. I can do better for me than God can do for me. Wait, are you a fool? Don't you know that David made a covenant with Jonathan that Saul's descendants would forever be elevated and exalted within David's kingdom once it's established? God has...